Hey, HBs. Usually, this is the podcast where two BFFs do a deep dive into a romance novel and giggle, debate, and go on tangents along the way. However, when the stars align and you get the opportunity to interview Tessa Dare, the Tessa Dare, you tell your to-be-read pile to hold on a damn minute and you set it up. So let's jump right in to my discussion of the governess game, how the Dukes stole Christmas, and so much more with the beacon of heart-melting prose and humility through excellence that is Tessa Dare. Here we go. All right. Hi, Tessa. Hi there. How are you? I am great. Thank you so much. Excellent. I have to just tell you that um, this is kind of a kind of a dream come true for me if I'm being totally transparent and I know that's probably awkward for you but I can't help but fangirl just a, a tiny bit <laughs> slightly but that's yeah. you know I appreciate it You're I, welcome. I find just about everything awkward so that's okay <laughs> fair enough fair enough so we are not normally an interview podcast normally our format is Aaron and I read a romance novel and then we do a deep dive like recap and review basically just have a book club by ourselves and then publish it for other people if that makes sense but one of the best things to come out of our podcast has been the community that has sort of sprouted up around us i'm sure your experience too is like romance landia is one of the most supportive and amazing places in the land uh world you know universe oh absolutely because of that, a lot of the questions that I have for you today are actually from our listeners. Right. Yeah, that's really exciting. That is. And then this morning, I listened to your interview on the Wicked Wallflowers Club. <laughs> um because we have a little bit of crossover and I wanted to make sure we had new content, you know. Okay, so we won't go into duck sex. Well, actually, I am okay. glad you asked, madam. <laughs> <laughs> because the only thing I have to add to your discussion is that it blew my mind when I learned about the forced copulation. First of all, I love the euphemisms that we bring up like all over the place for rape, like whether it's us talking about old school bodice rippers and talking about forced seduction mm -hmm. to scientists calling it forced copulation or whatever. I could not believe the female duck vagina has evolved to make sure this doesn't like work. Did you know that? No. So, okay, get this. I learned this at the Museum of Sex in New York City a while ago because they had a whole exhibit about the like sex in the animal kingdom. And boy ducks penises are in a counterclockwise spiral. Sure. So lady duck vaginal canals have evolved to be clockwise and have really sharp turns in them. <laughs> so unless the lady duck like relaxes and wants it to happen, it's almost impossible for the force population to actually take. Wow. Isn't that nuts? That is. But my mind is put at ease to know that every duck reproduction is not a rape. That's really... Isn't that really nice? Because I've, I've had this thought, you know, that ducks are just these terrible violent rapey creatures and and now knowing that the female has a measure of uh consent involved it's nice to know 
it's a tiny bit comforting, right? Comforting. That That's the word I was looking for. Defense Thank mechanism. You. Yeah. 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 Okay. So anyway, listener, um, you really need to check out Tessa's interview on the Wicked Wallflowers <laughs> Club. You can hear about her Hogwarts house, lobster sex, which Aaron and I were, if you remember, totally intrigued by from When a Scott Ties the Knot. And duck sex and duck rape. It's it goes <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> This is very true. I have no idea. (laughs) Well, we'll just see where we go today. (laughs) I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, I have have been known to be a bit of a wild card. All right. (laughs) Okay. We're here to talk about the governess game in particular. Awesome. But you also just had a big announcement. Do you want to tell everybody about that? Yeah. You know, we just announced the other day that... Sarah McLean and I and Sophie Jordan and Joanna Shoup are putting out a Christmas anthology called How the Dukes Stole Christmas. It'll be coming out October 15th. It's available for pre-order now. And uh, we're really excited about it. Reading all the descriptions and everything. I mean, all four of you are authors that I actually don't need descriptions for. I just hear you have something <laughs> come out and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to read that. <laughs> so Awesome. That's exciting. a very big compliment. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right. So the governess game, it's book two in your series, Girl Meets Duke. And this is Alexandra's story with the bookshop rake. Yes. <laughs> the bookshop rake. Yes. Well, every book in this Girl Meets Duke series has a meet cute of some sort, which is why, you know, it's called Girl Meets Duke. A meet cute is one of those accidental meetings. They literally sometimes bump into each other. And that's what's happened in Alexandra's life. Yeah, we got to see that. In the Duchess deal. Yes. So she literally has bumped into a man in a bookshop and they she's completely flustered. He's very handsome and charming and they part ways. She assumes she's never going to see him again. Bless her heart. (laughs) Yes. Despite that, she's not able to let go of thinking about him. And I mean, for me, this is very relatable. (laughs) I, I, I think that especially when I was younger, you have a chance encounter or a small interaction with somebody, and then you kind of concoct this whole imaginary relationship from that one incident, even if you know, you know, it's ridiculous, which Alexandra does, because she's a very practical person. She knows that it's completely irrational. It's never going to happen. But she can't, there's this little bit of her mind that can't let it go. So she thinks, of course, she's never going to see him again. And then she does. They Mm. run into one another a second time. This time, not so literally bumping into one another, but she shows up at his house, hoping to get business setting his clocks. And that's not a metaphor. She she really um, sets clocks for her living. And he thinks she's there to interview for governess positions. So they um, have this back and forth. And she accidentally becomes his governess through a series of various little events. I, I won't go into the entire, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she becomes his governess to his two young wards who he has inherited uh, the guardianship of Rosamond and Daisy. They're two little sisters who have been orphaned and are problematic 
to say the least, quirky. Um, So beautifully (laughs) almost broken, but you know they they can, oh, they're so wonderful. So, (sighs) yeah, Alex agrees to take the job because he offers her a lot of money and she needs money. Mm -hmm. So that's where it goes. And of course, now she's in the same house with this bookshop rake, which is what she referred to him as (laughs) um, ever since that chance meeting because she never knew his name. And... Uh, she's in the same house with him, this guy that's just tremendously attractive, and he's attracted to her as well. She realizes that she's been obsessed with him, but she's a little bit perturbed and also irritated with herself that, like, he doesn't remember her. Yes. I, I love that it's sort of a foundational part of her character, at least I think, where you know, she has these really, really high hopes, but then she also has enough sense to sort of bat herself down again. Uh-huh. It's like, oh, he doesn't remember me. Well, of course he doesn't remember you. Why would he? Right, <laughs> you know? right. And he's not hes not the perfect guy that she has been imagining ever mm. since that, that meeting in the bookshop either. You know, she kind of built him up into this very romantic figure and he's, uh, he's kind of a mess kind of a hot mess yeah. <laughs> in various ways. <laughs> so it's a bit of a letdown. He hasn't thought of her at all. You know, he's not so sensitive and thoughtful as she would have imagined him to be. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, she is still attracted to him despite all her best efforts not to be. Right. <laughs> it's just really, it's about the tug of war between her rationality and her imagination and her romanticism that she has tried to suppress because she has needed to be practical as a woman who works for her living. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of my favorite themes in the book is healing and grief. Each character sort of has their own hurdle as far as grief is concerned and then the the healing that comes after that. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if there was anything that made this like these themes important to you and why you included them in this book. Wow, that's that's a really good question. Because <laughs> <laughs> I do firmly believe that sometimes we end up as writers telling ourselves the story that we need to hear at the time. Ooh, yeah. But I... Now that you mention it, I, I mean, I didn't, hadn't lost anybody in particular. Oh, sure. However, yeah, it did seem to be something that would connect all the characters. They're all yeah. orphans. They all lost their family members in various dramatic circumstances. Mm. Um, and they're alone in their grief. And what they really need is, uh, is each other, is a support from other people around them but they're instead of course they're all being sort of foolish and building walls around themselves and avoiding discussing it or letting other people share that burden and it was nice to have the girls who could kind of be a little bit more obvious about working through that in a in a slightly uh more uh outwardly demonstrative way because (laughs) for adults it's more of an internal process but they have some uh clear issues with the death that they are working through. Yeah, I actually, I wanted to talk to you about that specifically because Rosamond and Daisy are the two girls and Daisy, I just, I mean, both of them, but you know, the the impetus is obviously Daisy and then Rosamond sort of plays off of her quite a bit. Uh But every day Daisy concocts a new way that her doll Millicent dies, Uh whether it's 
cholera or a drowning, like <laughs> so many things. She right. dies every day and they have to eulogize and bury her. Mm-hmm. So every time you write a book, I think to myself, wow, Tessa has finally written like the perfect book for me. You know, there's something about it that speaks to me and I'm like, man, she can't top this. And then the next <laughs> time you write a book, it happens all over again. But I really, really think I firmly on the record that between the girl's morbid obsession with illness and death and Alex's novel approach to educating them and just, you know, the grief and healing and, and the the way that you focus on different facets of education and discovery. Like, I really think you've done it this time. Aww. I will probably be proven wrong when the next book comes out. Yeah, but... I, I was just going to say, it sounds like a challenge. Yeah, right? <laughs> I am gauntlet thrown. <laughs> but the listeners know I have I have a, a sort of an obsession with the macabre as well. And it seems like that's having a little bit more of a public renaissance. That's true. The whole true crime sort of thing. Absolutely. And yeah. there's been a lot more communities on the internet popping up where you can actually like sort of be out about your weird obsession with it. Uh-huh. So I was wondering if that had anything to do with how this developed for you possibly i i do i have now that you mention it i have gotten kind of into all the true crime podcasts like so mm-hmm. many like everybody right you oh, know totally. like ser- everything from serial to oh man i have a silly amount of them that i've listened to i won't yeah. say silly because well, nothing silly if it interests you but Absolutely. i i do <laughs> believe that that's um it is sort of having a moment <laughs> Mm. And um, a friend suggested to me that she had heard that perhaps it has something to do with the idea of justice. Like everything right now feels very um, like there's no consequences for anything, especially oh, when it comes preach. to certain people. <laughs> and yeah. um, and people are kind of craving the sense of right and wrong and justice, which is interesting. Oh. But I, I think where that sort of morbid fascination of um Daisy in particular and her doll. You know, you hear every once in a while these people say that Barbies give girls an unrealistic expectation of what beauty and mm. and what and womanhood or maturity looks like. Absolutely. But actually, you know, when I was a kid, I was horrible to my Barbies. I think Me a too. lot of us were. You know, that we did terrible things to them. We cut off their hair and we popped off their heads and they <laughs> I actually used to play, I called it crime scene Barbie. Right, right. And I, I would do similar things to what Daisy did where I would just like stage really creative deaths Yeah, with Barbie. Yeah. <laughs> and I think some of the worry about that is completely misplaced because mm. we do not, if you've ever seen a child play, idolization is not what's happening no you know they're mostly used to uh to we work through different sorts of fears and fascinations with toys when we're younger and maybe Mm -hmm. when when we're older as well uh i think it's something that's more universal than you would think it's a way to explore right i just know that i did all sorts of 
particularly terrible things. So I, I, I really don't think that it's all that unusual. No, <laughs> no. But being a kid is really, really hard. Mm-hmm. We tend to have that idea that, oh, our childhood was idyllic because we didn't have to pay bills or, you know, go to work or whatever the case may be. But if you really remember, honestly, it is really, really hard to be a child. It is hard work. Well, yeah, so much of childhood is just trial and lots of error. Yes, yes. (laughs) And working through those frustrations. Yes. This is actually my first time writing children into a book. I have written a lot of teenagers and Mm pre-teenagers, but this is one of my first time writing actual younger children. And I was very um, concerned about making sure that they felt somewhat, you know, real, and not too precocious or idealistic, I guess, or I don't, I don't know, it was it was kind of I worried about it a lot. And so when the book came out, and people were enjoying them, I was very relieved. (laughs) That makes sense. Yeah. Oh, one one listener, Sarah B, wanted to know if Daisy's obsession was insmi- inspired by Tootie Smith from Meet Me in St. Louis. Are you familiar with that? I am. Well, you know what? <laughs> this is funny because um, my novella in this upcoming Christmas anthology is actually called Meet Me in Mayfair, uh-huh. and it has some more specifically specific parallels to that movie. Not not oh, too much, exciting. but definitely there is a quite bloodthirsty younger sister. Um, so <laughs> maybe I just maybe it's something I just enjoy. I don't know children who with a with a certain inner uh, morbidity. Uh huh. Well, and then another theme that I personally really liked was sort of your focus on on education and discovery in different ways, because Alex, of course, becomes their governess. And Chase's view on that at first is that she should be the disciplinarian and Mm -hmm. the very traditional educator. Mm -hmm. And Alex sort of comes to the conclusion that a, the, the girls will be served a lot better by a more non-traditional education, that they'll actually be reached that way, whereas they'll just rebel if all he wants them to work on is needlepoint and curtsies. Mm-hmm. But I loved all of the components that you wove in about what girls should know <laughs> and how the characters were quietly bucking that. Quietly and not so quietly, actually. <laughs> No. Um, yeah, that that little thread of feminism is something that <laughs> I will put through all my books, probably. Yep. But the definitely the ideas of education and learning through play, that that is something that came directly from my life at that time, mm. as we were going through something similar with my son. This is where I talk about, you know, writing what you need to hear at the time. Yeah. I, My son has ADHD and true story. I kind of came to understand and finally get him checked for that as I was writing Say Yes to the Marquis because the hero of that book has ADHD. Oh. So I was, of course, it's not called that in the, no, the no, book, no. Right. but I was researching it quite a bit and I hadn't, I realized I hadn't had quite 
hadn't had a very good understanding of it because I had that idea. I think some many people do with that um, ADD or ADHD is all about, you know, being hyperactive and bouncing around and right. un unable you know, always um, being like the naughty kid in class and starting yep. fights and all that sort of thing. Not being able to sit still. Yeah. And my son was not like that at all, but he didn't have those behavior problems. So even though every once in a while we would talk about like, maybe there's something going on there, we always pushed away that possibility because he didn't have those characteristics. But sure. that was something that came out of writing that book is that we finally had some uh, investigation and, and realized that no, there's different forms of ADHD. And he has a pretty profound case of, of the non um, of the there's, there's the, I'm going to forget all the words now. There's a combined type. There's an impulsive type, which is Ooh. a little bit more of the behavior like the problem. Physical, right, right, right. right. The physical manifestations. And then there's the distractible, unable to focus type, which is yeah. what he has. And so for the next few years, after I, we had him evaluated and he was diagnosed, he tried various things to help him succeed in his school because oh. he had such a difficult time completing work in class or yeah. doing homework at home because he would be exhausted of, from trying to concentrate through the day. And, you know, his teacher's not quite getting it. Unfortunately, I think a lot of adults and, and a lot of teachers in particular think that ADHD is overdiagnosed and kind yeah. of an excuse for yeah. kids who just don't want to behave or something like that. Right. And which is very frustrating. So anyway, it was a it was a struggle for us for several years. So by the time I was writing this book, we were in almost like crisis mode because he was mm -hmm. having such a hard time in his school. And we eventually hit the point where we just looked at it and said, you know what, he's a smart kid. And the teachers want him to do things their way, but it's just not working for him. So we pulled him out of his traditional school and investigated various alternatives. And we found a school that is like the complete opposite. It, it, it makes oh. Montessori look like military school. It is so, <laughs> it is so freeform. Oh, I dig that. Yeah. But they're, you know, they're attitude is that children learn through doing and that if a kid wants to learn something they will and if you try to force a kid to learn something that they don't want to learn it's it's just an exercise in frustration for everything yeah. for everyone involved and so he has just loved it and it, he's like a completely different kid and our house is just so much more pleasant and calm our family life we don't have to be arguing with him over homework every day oh, yay. yeah and well, i he's know probably learning more i think he really is yeah. and it's not it's not all some of it is more real life focused you know they it's really cute they call their clubs corporations and yeah. so <laughs> um so they have like cooking corporation where they make you know a hot lunch every you know, once or twice a week and charge for it or they mm -hmm. have um it's very very student driven and the students they 
write each other up for rule infractions and go to like a sort of little student court if there's going to be uh, a sentence for the <laughs> for very the student cool. and stuff. It's very very um, emphasizes um, personal responsibility mm-hmm. and, and well, an engagement. It sounds yes, like yes. So it's just been just been fantastic for him and so when I was writing um, Mm -hmm. this book you know I had definitely was going through that evolution in my mind of letting go what traditional school needs to look like and Mm -hmm. which is kind of hard for a parent because it can feel like you're letting them off the hook somehow and you're not they're not going to be prepared for life the same as other kids but but coming to realize that you know different kids learn in different ways and motivating children to learn through play and through real life applications is oftentimes more effective than it is to sit them down and just insist that for these 45 minutes, we're going to do math. Yeah, that really comes out in the lesson plans that Alex creates for these girls. I just loved it because without going into too much detail, Alex has a sailing background. Mm -hmm. Is that a good way to put it? She (laughs) she grew up on the high seas. Yes. So the girls have all of these, you know, like sort of darker fascinations and Rosamond is is just you know she's a bit of a little girl pirate honestly yeah she really is she craves self-determination I think which is what a lot of yes exactly the ability to take care of herself and to take care of her sister and I think a lot of kids especially of her age are trying to achieve the same thing you want to know that you can survive if something happened to your parents something has happened to her parents and so she's very interested in real life you know that's where a lot of kids start to ask about like jobs and how much does it cost for certain things and and ideas of that nature so um she's in that phase herself and she so she's motivated by alex's game so to speak uh piracy because it has a lot of real world applications yeah they chart a course from europe to malta right (laughs) exactly geography that way exactly i loved it absolutely loved it it seemed to me there was also a a theme of sex education in this too which i i used to be a sex educator and oh really yeah my co-host is listening to this right now going Because she hates it when I go on my sex ed tangents. But <laughs> oh, I'll love it. Don't worry. I've already learned something about ducks, so you know you can go and teach me other things. As yeah, well. absolutely. Well, one of my favorite sections. So I, I used to start out most of the classes just by doing an icebreaker where we went through all of the medical terms for different anatomy uh, and like what we would talk about. Because I really wanted the kids to get in the mindset of like, if you can't talk about it, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. You uh-huh. know, like when they would cringe during our consent role plays and stuff, I would be like, well, you know, if if you're going to be doing this, you need to be able to talk about what's okay and what's not okay. And what boundaries. a very good point. Yeah. yeah. So if you can't say the word penis, you probably shouldn't be messing with it. <laughs> <laughs> And there's literally a section in this book that's like that. Um, so yes. I, just, I just sort of, you know, I, I celebrated. Good. But the heroine is also very refreshingly open and curious. So was there any inspiration for that in this particular novel? I don't know. I, I hopefully I, I try to write heroines who are, regardless of their personal experience level, mm. I want them to own their own sexuality and to make decisions about it and to be, you know, interested in doing whatever it is that they end up doing. So 
that's something that I, I hope is a theme throughout my books. But in particular, I kind of um, liked emphasizing or exploring or something, the idea without going into too much detail, mm-hmm. again, that sex is more than penetration. You know, yeah. there's different, you know, it's not like PIV, <laughs> penis and, vagi- and right. vagina, now that we're, since we're going to be talking about all these terms, is the only legitimate form or meaningful form of sex i mean how do you lose your virginity i mean some people will never have that kind of male female intercourse do they count as virgins their whole lives no not at all yeah aaron aaron and i were talking about that on on the podcast a while ago where she was like you know the concept of virginity is is kind of ridiculous because i have I have lesbian friends who have literally had babies come out of their vaginas and yet they are still considered virgins. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. And it's, I think our whole idea of, you know, virginity and um, needs to kind of be adjusted. (laughs) So I, 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 or die. Yes. I mean, obviously at the time in particular, because the risk of uh, childbearing was, you know, something that it was, it was not, you know, there weren't any, you know, birth control pills or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it was a little bit something more that required a little bit more caution than other forms of sexual uh, play, pleasure, gratification. play, gratification. Sure. Right. I, mean, I, to, I, I was leaning toward Congress, but then I think that that is synonymous with intercourse. Oh, yeah. Um. So, so I mean, there is, there is, it is an important uh, distinction, I think. Certainly. But certainly. the somebody you know had asked me about Chase and Alex's first sex scene uh-huh. being, you know, the scene where they actually first have. And of course, and I'm like, I don't really consider that their first sex scene. Oh, I mean, no, I didn't either. So it, it um, you know, and I, I like I wanted to write a rake who actually you know, had some uh, knowledge and and uh, and and uh, realistic um, uh, methods of avoiding uh, pregnancy or creating causing pregnancy and uh, contracting disease because um, it really was, it, it wasn't quite as easy as just pull out and right. <laughs> those days of time. Yeah. The pull out method is not foolproof. Although I've used the, I've done the pull out method with other couples, but um. yeah, <laughs> but it's, if you really want to be sure there is uh, really only certain ways to do that. So, right. Absolutely. That actually, um, sort of goes into uh, we had a lot of questions about character development from listeners so I personally had a question about how you decide your characters views on sex like their sexual style their kinks how does that come about for you oh wow (laughs) (laughs) I think it it kind of comes hopefully organically from the character's personalities Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that that's somewhere I start with any particular character I Hmm. because for me the romance is usually is the plot a lot of authors um, especially if you're you know you're writing some kind of a suspense plot or some other 
more intricate plot than I write. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to take care of all those other things that are happening. And I'm I'm just not good at those kinds of intricate plotting. So I just, for me, the romance usually is the plot. So I feel like the emotions and the sex have to be reflective of one another you know the emotional tension makes the sexual tension higher which makes the emotional Mm -hmm. tension higher which so they build on one another and are interwoven so if there are you know certain sort of power imbalances or various aspects related in the emotional tension I will often try to find a way that the sexual tension will reflect that or balance Mm. it or add to it or shade that in a more nuanced way like for example i guess the duchess deal is a good example because the hero is very scarred and so of course that's a big big deal when he gets into bed with the Mm -hmm. heroine you know he has a lot of fears and concerns uh, about what's that meaning to his sex life and who he is now compared to who he was before and will he be rejected that sort of thing Absolutely. And, and yeah, the, the scene that came to mind for me from the Duchess deal was when she sort of astride him and she kisses up one side of his face and then down the other. And he says he feels like his two halves are finally being knitted together. Oh, yay. Yeah, I know. They're like, um, yeah, so that was really important, right? You know, and it's not just that like accepting scars, it's, you know, or like refusing to see them or something like that, which is Mm -hmm. not realistic anyway. It's that, you know, realizing that he is the sum of his parts, you know, we all are, right? Absolutely. So when you love somebody, you are loving all the different facets of them. Yeah, absolutely. So our listener, Anne, had a lot of questions about creating a character, and she wanted to know sort of, how you got started and like how you get started with each character and and if you have any tips on developing characters with rich backstories she was asking about inspiration like how does that work for you oh wow I wish that I could (laughs) give that a simple answer Mm. that it works that I do it this way or that way the truth is that it really is different depending on the book and the story sometimes I really do start with the situation sort of the meat cute of it all and Mm. uh and work from there I think one example of that is any duchess will do where the heroine is a serving girl and the hero is a duke. So, you know, I just liked the idea that this playboy duke is dragged down to this town full of spinsters by his uh-huh. mother and said, you know, she just says pick one. And <laughs> just to get back at her, he picks the serving girl, right? Right. And so that's really where that whole book emerged from. I mean, I knew I had a serving girl in Spindle Cove that would make a good heroine for this but it it really just just came from that whole idea and then everything about their personalities was just hopefully you know trying to give them a a good good motivations for why they would do why does why is she gonna say yes you know she needs she can use the money well but she's a very proud person so why is she willing to accept money and so it has a lot to do with her sister and why does she Mm -hmm. have to come back within a week while her sister is waiting on her this kind of thing you know sometimes it's it's just the requirements of the plot sure (laughs) make me come up with characteristics that will fit that okay so that's one way and then sometimes it really does start more from 
a character, especially if there's a character that's been a side character in other stories. And I'm, um, mm. people have asked for, I wanted to write a story about them. And I think a good example of that would be Charlotte, who is from the Spindle Cove series as well. And she's the younger sister of two of the other heroines. And she's a teenager in that series. And she's very, she has a lot of spirit and, and good humor. And she's sort of like, she's not sassy. She's just, yeah, I, I would say the spirit. I think that she even describes it that one, you know, her oldest sister is the beauty of the family and her middle sister, the middle sister is the brains. And then she's the spirit, right? She's got Aww, the, right. Yeah. So when I was thinking about who would be, what would be a story for her, you know, I had to kind of come up with, Obviously, she had to age up a little bit. And so what's happened in the meantime? What's she been doing? And what's her situation coming into it? The same thing, her hero was a character that was a side character from Say Yes to the Marquis. And so you had to, I had to fill in a lot of what was happening along the way in order to put them together. So I, it just really starts, comes in starts and fits for me. And some of the things that are personality quirks and histories they just evolve along the way in one way or another ash in the duchess deal has a habit of of um, swearing with shakespearean oh, language so lovely <laughs> and that it just came out because my mother happened to give my husband this little book of shakespearean curses as a stocking stuffer gift for christmas excellent and so i immediately stole it and i'm like this is going to be one of ash's personality traits oh i love and it. i yeah. i don't know you know it's just sometimes it's just random stuff like that or my in uh Izzy and Ransom in Romancing the Duke have this little game of uh, would you rather. She's been corresponding with a younger boy who's, who read her father's stories and he asks her all these sort of silly like, would you rather find $5 on the ground or have $100 dangled 20 feet above you or something like that. Okay. You know, these, these very strange little um, decisions that you have to kind of talk through mm -hmm. and think about. And so those have a bunch of those in the book. And those are completely from my son at the time. He loved to ask those kinds of like, would you rather this or would you rather that? You oh, know? fun. Yeah. Would you rather swim through, would you rather have a bathtub full of honey or <laughs> um, take a shower in oatmeal? Or so, you know, like <laughs> yeah. weird things like that, you know? And so, um, so that just came from there. Just, it just just little bits and pieces of life well actually honey has antibacterial qualities so so you're gonna pick the honey i would do that yeah okay. <laughs> plus it tastes delicious if you accidentally go under i guess yeah <laughs> well see oatmeal can be good for the skin too oh oatmeal's very very good for the skin so yeah. you know it's a good a, moisturizer right i think like a honey oatmeal body treatment could probably be the best of both worlds mm-hmm do you have any rules about creating heroines and heroes as they relate to each other? Well, you never want them to be too much like each other. I mean, Fair. I think that's the main rule of yeah. all romance. There has to be conflict between the two of them. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I think that you want two people who they can have common things in common, but and they probably should have something in common. But they should also have something major that they have completely different worldviews on, you know. And so um, and one of them might be 
one or both of them might be wrong about it. But, uh, you know, it's just because we were just talking about romancing the Duke. The heroine Izzy has um, has a pretty uh, open idea of romance. She really believes in love, even though she has never yet fallen in love herself. Uh-huh. And the hero is very like forget it. I mean, this is a common dynamic in a whole lot of romance right, where right. the woman is more romantic than the male, but they're, they're a little bit to the extremes of that. Um, or, you know, just how to, maybe they have different ideas on how to solve a problem or maybe, you know, they're just one is serious and one is, uh, tries to take things more lightly because what's the good of worrying because you can't control stuff. So the, you know, some, some kind of philosophical difference, I think, is important. And then one has to manifest in the plot. It can't just be, it can't just be something that's just sort of tangential to the rest of their existence. It, it should be reflected in the action of the story and have consequences. And then you have to like tie them together so they can't just walk separate ways. And right. So they, they have to work it out. Period. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> like, well, agree to disagree. Goodbye. You know, yeah, no, they've, they've got to stuck one way or another. Maybe in yeah. a bathtub full of honey. I don't know. Yeah. They can there we go. Do some Let's face do masks. an entire novella where the <laughs> yeah. hero and the heroine are stuck together with honey. I, <laughs> I don't know. I'm into it. <laughs> the implications are, are implications. Vast and powerful. How, and then, of course, there's a bear. So, <laughs> oh my God, you just made one of our listeners' lives. If you could possibly, <laughs> we have an Aussie bear lover. Oh, oh dear. And if you could get a bear, pe- probably maybe in Penny's book, if you can weave a bear in there, you will make Leanne's world. <gasps> oh my gosh. Maybe she could rescue a bear from bear baiting. I think that would be great. I mean, just jot it down. You know, it's okay. a possibility. Yeah, it's, in, it's in the mix now. I'm working on this book. So, you know, I'll keep it in mind. Fair enough. Um, okay. So you actually started writing um, Jane Austen fan fiction, right? Yes. So one of the biggest recurring questions that we had was can we have some place oh my gosh available <laughs> where you can know we what find this it? is really sad but i am not sure i <laughs> the sites that i posted it on are like uh-huh. defunct now hmm. and i probably somewhere have it backed up maybe Oh man. I know. And but you know what? I think it would kind of be a disappointment. <laughs> Maybe I'm not I'm not really trying to hold it to to hold it hostage or anything like that, but I just <laughs> not I'm not really sure that anybody's gonna be all that excited about it. Fair um, enough. It's always nice to see where your heroes have their roots though. So, you know. I, well <laughs> Oh look. Here here it is. <laughs> there it is somebody at the time would put these really sweet little pdfs together with um, illustrations and everything maybe yes. I, i'll put this up on somewhere i'll send you if i do i'll send you the link that would be lovely and is that why you write historical as aaron calls it england times romance um <laughs> yes completely yeah. absolutely it's always a huge jane austen and historical romance 
historical fiction fan. Right. It's really the only kind of romance I ever really considered writing. Really? And is that, do you think that will be the way you look at your career going forward? Because we had a couple of uh, listeners who wanted to know if you would ever consider writing a contemporary or a paranormal just because they love your snappy, witty dialogue so much. And they thought that it might, yeah, they thought it would transfer really, really well to those subgenres as well. Well, of course, there's some people who would say I write contemporaries. <laughs> People are just dressed up. um, I do not consider it that way. But I I do think, well, I say this now, this is probably the surest way to make it happen. I don't see myself writing paranormal because Mm. it's just, it's not my jam. And I, I, there's a whole, so much world building that goes into creating a paranormal setting. For a Regency's, the world building is is there. We just all borrow it from each other, basically. It's, It's created almost like a fandom with a certain canon and that's my the way I look at it Mm -hmm. Uh, as far as contemporary that thought occurs to me every once in a while (laughs) but it hasn't happened yet and isn't in any particularly imminent plans (laughs) but I wouldn't say it would never happen that's definitely more likely than paranormal yeah well and I I love that you mentioned that there's sort of a a world that you write in when you're a, a Regency author, because I feel like there's so many questions that people have. Actually, one of them, I just have to, I, I love her phrasing. Erica wanted to, I'll just compliment you. She says that your heroines are so badass and rolling uh-huh. in confidence porn. <laughs> so I <thought> you'd enjoy <laughs> that. <laughs> How sweet. Yeah. But the second part of her question was like, how do you, find them a place in England times right because that's uh-huh. the joke in our podcast is that Erin she doesn't have the bandwidth to be like oh Victorian is and Regency yeah. is she's yeah. just like England fine. times England times <laughs> and I think that's perfectly fine yeah but it does raise these questions of like quote-unquote historical accuracy oh, and yeah. like what is appropriate what is reaching and I get frustrated with it just because those women existed absolutely just because we don't talk about them or just because they're not widely known doesn't mean they didn't already have a place if that makes sense yeah I completely agree I don't think that the modern era invented anything Uh, there's nothing new Mm. under the sun you can tell I'm a pastor's girl it's from Ecclesiastes um I (laughs) (laughs) so I believe human nature is human nature and People do not change nearly as much as we might want to assume that they have or did. Sure. I believe firmly that there were women doing very, um, and I, so we know about some of them, and I'm sure that we don't know about a great many more. Yeah. But there were a lot of women who were taking strong roles, who were doing fascinating things, uh, making discoveries and exploring and fighting and Some of them we know about and some of them are probably lost to history and some may be uncovered yet, which would be Mm -hmm. wonderful. Particularly in the Regency, England, I I talked about this in the other um, podcast, so I don't want to go super crazy with it now, but they were at war for literally decades. And a huge number of the younger generation of men were just either gone like from England or gone as in dead and 
there's no way that the society could have kept functioning unless women stepped in to run shops, to run farms, to do all kinds of things that we generally assume didn't women didn't do in Regency England. So I completely reject the idea that women weren't doing anything except for sitting around needle pointing. But yeah, yeah, it's yeah. also true that there probably were women who, especially in the upper classes, who were confined to calling on one another and doing needle point and, and whatnot. And, you know, too bad for them. I'm sure that they, they wished, most of them we wished probably that they had um, slightly more self-determined uh, existences. Nothing right. wrong with needlepoint if that's your thing, but if you feel forced into it, then it's, it must have been quite frustrating. So, and I also kind of take the idea of Jane Austen's books, because in my mind, if you can find it in Austen, of course, it's uh, appropriate to the period. There's some, you know, some of the traditional regencies um, kind of set up this idea that a man and a woman alone together at all were, you know, considered the woman was considered compromised. Well, that's not Mm -hmm. true. I mean, Elizabeth and Darcy are in the same room together alone all the time, and she's not compromised. Right. There's people who run off together and elope and definitely have premarital sex. And it's strongly implied, if not, for example, with Lydia. I mean, obviously, she's shacked up with the guy. And so to right. uh, to say that a, a girl from a, a gentleman's family would never do that sort of thing is is obviously wrong. Oh, <laughs> you know, it's absolutely ridiculous. Well, yeah, so... I... I always end up pointing out the support that Mr. Bennett gives to Elizabeth in all of her romantic decisions. Oh, absolutely. That's so true. Yeah, I love I love that he's a, a man in a, a text that was written during the period that's mm-hmm. like, no, my daughter is smart and capable. And if she doesn't want to marry that man, she will not. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And even though that would mean a lot to their family, too, it's not just her, you know, exactly. it would have been huge for their whole security of her whole family. And he's just exactly. like, forget it. <laughs> I know. You know. If only he'd been smart and gone after Mary. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exa- well, suited for and him. I will tell you, there's quite a bit of fan fiction in which that happens. <laughs> I dig it. I dig it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you, um, you've sort of described your work as like Jane Austen meets rom-com, right? I think that that's the idea. Uh, one time I pitched um, back when I was writing A Week to Be Wicked, I, I told my editor, editor it was going to be Jane Austen meets uh, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. <laughs> <laughs> so that went, I think that went over well with the the sales team. Oh, so, I did. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think like rom coms or buddy comedy type things, with, mm-hmm. um, but in a regency setting. Probably... Yeah, absolutely. So, do you have any favorite rom coms you want to share? About. Oh, wow. Well, definitely any road trip um, like A Week to be Wicked owes a lot to movies like Romancing the Stone or... Um, Ooh. Yeah. So because there is similar, you know, similar things generally happen in road trips. You're trapped in the same room together. You end up having to work some kind of some menial task to get back on track, you kind of yeah. stumble into some sort of party or village festival or whatever the case is. Finally, the woman gets, the characters get cleaned up and, and you know, shed their muddy clothes. And, mm-hmm. you know, those sorts of scenes are, <laughs> are in every great road trip romance, it feels like. So that's definitely one that 
is uh, stands the test of time. Sometimes when there's certain ones that I like to watch when I feel like I need some um, dialogue mojo, like not that mm. I not that it to steal dialogue, but just like oh yeah, that's the kind of dynamic. And though that's different things all the way from some of the Oscar Wilde adaptations of the last few years to not last few years, the last few decades, I should say, uh-huh. or um, like the there was a good importance of being earnest with Rupert Everett and Colin Firth. Anyway, and he, he writes, of course, the most brilliant dialogue or or something more modern, like The Proposal with Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds. I, oh. I'm, I'm not, it's not my favorite movie, but right. the banter between them and the is spirit is awesome. It's definitely the best part of that movie. Yeah. Other than Betty White, right? Cause she oh, God. Be oh, God. She's, she's the best in anything. <laughs> she she's can be my empress of everything. <laughs> or even like Deadpool. I, I was very enamored oh, yeah. with Deadpool when I wrote um, The Duchess Deal. So <gasps> oh. just anything with really good dialogue is, is a favorite of mine. Or, um, oh, My Best Friend's Wedding. I love that oh, yeah. movie. And yeah. it's just got so much hilarious it's not all between the hero and the heroine either. In fact, most of it isn't. Look, there's another Rupert Everett movie. Somebody <laughs> needs to bring back Rupert Everett. He's <laughs> so yeah. They those kinds of things I find very um, inspiring. Just anything generally with great uh, tension and dialogue. So that's what gets you in a good headspace to create the dialogue that has become like sort of part of your brand. Because that was. We had a lot of listener questions about that, too. I'm, I'm just, like, amazed that you had so many listener questions, period. I think this is fantastic. Oh. I was like, well, you know, so people will have asked, like, three questions or something. And you're like, oh, no. We had a lot of listener Tessa. questions about this. Um, we, I, we have the best listeners in the GD world. Like, that's they're, fantastic. Yeah. The, Hi, listeners. It, the community that and like they're planning meetups they're we're becoming actual friends what? like it's yeah we That's have so, so awesome it's amazing i'm the luckiest like we are it's crazy so elizabeth, humor and banter right, so, right yeah aaron elizabeth and emily all ask questions surrounding this and elizabeth i thought brought up a really good point because she said that she's bought and read all of your books but lately she's been also doing the audiobook from the library. Oh yeah. And she says, well, first of all, you know, the I forget her name, but the woman who does this series is Mary just Jane brilliant. Wells. Yes. Oh, Mary I Jane Wells. think she is the best. And I I mean, not that I haven't had good narrators in the past, but she has done an amazing job. And, you know, the Duchess Deal audiobook actually it won the Audie Award for Best oh. Romance. Like not cool. even best historical romance romance or best you know but best romance it was pretty cool so and that's you know that just shows what an amazing narrator she is and um how great she's done in fact i i still haven't i've never listened to a complete audiobook of one of my books but hers i can are the only ones that i can bear to listen to more than like five minutes because (laughs) (laughs) so it's funny because you know humor comes off in it comes off differently on the page and then when you hear it and so um a lot of the listeners were wondering like how you approach integrating humor into your novels and i i guess i try to make sure it's it's pretty much present completely i i mean i do i do know that that's one of the big reasons that most readers will pick up my books is because they expect 
to laugh and enjoy it. Mm. So I don't want to ever let people down and like suddenly do the somber, angsty Tessa Dare novel (laughs) where there's nothing (laughs) funny in it. Where all of a sudden you become Adele and you're like, Adele, you've been married. You're, you're, you should, you have a child. Are you not happy now? Why are you talking about this breakup still? Oh, no, I, yeah, oh, Adele. Okay. I, it took no, me I a while to figure out which Adele you meant, but Sorry. okay, got it. No, no, that's so true. Yeah. But I, I don't really feel like I have to work that hard because. I enjoy writing the humorous parts more than probably any other. And mm. of to me, life is funny. Love is funny. We do stupid things when we're in love. Yeah. Um, crazy things happen in real life. I am incredibly clumsy. I, on a regular, not a regular basis, I don't know, but every once in a while, I just completely slip and eat it and just totally <laughs> go sprawling. It happens to me in the Denver airport just last year total sprawl on my face like (laughs) to the point where people stop and are like are you okay ma'am that kind of like god i was okay until you said ma'am um uh so that happens to me on a regular basis and i am so i will defend my slapstick comedy to the death because it's part of my life and i i do not feel ashamed of using it whatsoever (laughs) oh yeah absolutely there's a there's a great lake scene in the governess game that just it was so good because you were i was trying to feel like bad because the the heroine's feel fear was real but at the same time the outcome was just so funny (laughs) i'm glad that worked for you yeah yeah usually there's certain scenes and certain i i was telling somebody a while ago I think that writing humor in a book is really difficult because you don't know whether what made you laugh and I do laugh aloud as I'm writing because if I can't make myself laugh then who else am I gonna make laugh yeah but you still don't know for sure if anyone else is gonna find it funny so it's like standing at one long one end of this really long tunnel and yelling this joke and then waiting (laughs) months to oh know to see if some laughter echoes back you know yeah. because you don't you don't know if it's gonna work and I know joke works for everybody which is fine but it's such a relief and the main reason that I will read reviews at the beginning of when a book is out I don't read them forever and all of them but I the, la- the first few weeks I, I generally do because I want to know if they laughed in the right place. (laughs) Or sometimes people will send me tweets like, oh my God, this part, I just died. And so, and usually I want there to be that kind of a scene and I can kind of feel it when there is and I can kind of feel it when there's not. And so I, you know, like what's the scene that people are going to write me, to tweet me about and be like, oh my God, I can't believe, or this part cracked me up or whatever Mm -hmm. it was. Because it's often, it's usually there's one or two scenes that are, so like this one, it was all the doll funerals, right? Oh yeah. Like the doll funerals were hysterical. And his Um, eulogies are just so good. Right. Well, (laughs) thank you. I'm I'm glad that they, I really, I wanted to write like an appendix of like 20 eulogies, but I had kind of like spent my own uh, creativity on the the ones that are in there. So I couldn't think of anything more or anything that would be worth reading, including extra. So I, um, so yeah, so that one was the doll funerals last book. 
um do you want to oh wait yeah Dasha Steele I think I kind of knew it would be or hoped it would be the scene where Ash goes to her father's house and sneaks in in the middle of the night and pretends to be the devil yeah like when I wrote that scene I felt like okay this is the scene this is the funny scene or when do you want to start a scandal there's um the mom's sex ed lesson using the peach and the eggplant and so mm-hmm. i thought that that would probably be a the hit emojis yeah so that was kind of fun because people would just tweet me like the emojis and uh-huh. like and 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 that was like oh yeah i know what part you got to so um i want some level of humor throughout the book but something in particular that will stick as the funniest or the most outlandish part uh, that people will remember the book by. Yeah. Because yeah. there's a lot of books that will make you laugh, but like what what will stick in your mind and be like, oh yeah, this is the book with all the crazy dolphins. Mm-hmm. I think like nobody will ever forget the croquet in or Paul Mall or whatever it's called in Julie, the Bridgerton's play in Julia Quinn's uh, series. There's like this epic, epic game of... Uh, Paul Mall in the Viscount Who Loves Me, I believe it's in that one. Oh, I yes. heard that yet. Oh my gosh, it's so fun. I... And that's like the scene, right? Uh-huh. So, um, you know, it has the mallet of death. Isn't that Colin's book? Is that Colin's book? Um, no, no that's no. Romancing Mr. Bridgerton. Um, this, uh, this is Anthony's book. Yes, okay. And so it's pretty... Um, it's pretty hilarious. It's very, very, very hilarious. And it's classic oh, Julia Quinn, but it's like that one that she will, ne- you know, people remember forever. And uh-huh. and so I, I really want there to be something in the book that will like stick in people's minds, hopefully afterward. <laughs> it's also It's also some relief to be able to write witty people because I often, you know, you think of that, I think a lot of us are this way. It's not until three days later or weeks later in the shower that you think of the perfect retort to something. But when you're writing a book, you can think of that three weeks later or something and then put it in the book and Uh make your character seem so much wittier than anybody or you in real life. So that's that's the best. Oh, yeah, that's really true. But it comes. No, it's just it's always so amazing to me because I am not a I am not a person who can craft humor. I can be situationally funny and, you know, that kind of thing. But I can't sit down and, like, write a joke that will make people laugh. But that's um, fine. I mean, everybody's got their thing, right? And so some, absolutely. some you know, authors, readers pick up the book, you know, knowing that they're just going to be in for this emotional roller coaster and they need to probably have some tissues nearby. And that's great, right. too. So it's not that everybody needs to try to write humor in fact if you have to try really hard to write it it's probably you shouldn't absolutely because yeah. it's it's just either something that is part of your skill set or or i don't want to know i don't want to make it sound it's like it's like something can come naturally yeah sure. i don't think it's some particular you know rare talent either but i some people just evolves naturally from their voice and some people would have to be a real struggle and if it's a real struggle for you it's probably it's probably not worth fighting against your own voice yeah you have to find what works for you yeah absolutely yeah that's a really that's a really good tip for our um, aspiring author listeners too (laughs) don't try to fit yourself into a square peg if you're or a square hole if you're a round 
cylinder. I don't know. Absolutely. <laughs> that that thing. Right. That, right. that old, you know, so-and-so. When in the shower <laughs> tomorrow, we'll come up with a perfectly funny way <laughs> we will. to have said that. It's really true. Um, okay. So when you're doing research, what is your least favorite thing about this ver like this historical time period of like England, Ireland, Scotland. Do you have a least favorite thing, and like how do how do you navigate that in your writing? The least favorite thing was like uh, it's okay to swear, right? Yeah. The least favorite thing is how shitty the upper class was. <laughs> I mean, to, to, yeah. and the whole you know idea of colonialism and imperialism, and you know. <laughs> Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and especially if you get to this is why another, you know, the whole argument around historical accuracy gets to me. Like, really, I don't want to write historically accurate dudes. We're probably all bigots who made their money on the backs of people who were, if not enslaved, you know, in the in the new right, world. exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It's not real Either ethical slaves means or, right. Or Even if they're slaves. old money, super yeah. old money, it came from serfs or right. So none of it is really great. And that's uh, quite honestly a reason why I like to write over the top because mm. I don't feel like the actual realistic upper classes of the time were super great. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes sense. And I, I like the way that you and a couple of other authors really pay homage to that, usually via the character's parents or their ancestors or the the duties they feel compelled by but still are yeah that's one way to get around it that's one way to get around it is to make them very like principled and dutiful and you know feel uh, obliged to be good stewards of Mm. their title of their land and protective of their tenants and whatnot yeah they never quite go so far as to like redistribute that land no (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah it's definitely it's a it's a struggle this that whole tension between taking what what i personally love about it the romance the romantic parts of it without letting the characters be too it's something i think about a lot and don't really have a have a i'm not completely um have not yet you know, come to a, a great rationalization or right. a resolution of it. Um, I do think, though, that that's one reason also that I, I don't mind uh, writing so much humor is because if you're, if you're making fun of the lords and ladies, it's, it's definitely punching up, right? They don't, in terms of, you know, you know, I'm talking about punching up and punching down. Yeah. Oh, you know, certainly, certainly, it's certainly. like always in humor, you always want to punch up. So mm-hmm. punching up at the Dukes is, is always totally fair game. If anybody, if any sliver of society is due for their humor comeuppance, <laughs> it's the, the upper classes yeah. of Regency England. So, you know, I feel that's one good thing. Like, I feel like I have a complete license to mock them mercilessly. Oh, most um, certainly. <laughs> But yeah, it's something that uh, I think historical romance is having a big conversation with at the at the moment, right? You know, like there was more to the actual historical period than rich white people, yeah. and and for me, it's like how do you bring that in without 
punching down, you know, in in the sense of you don't want to make somebody who was on the unfortunate right. end of that system. I don't want to mock that experience in any sort of way. So, well, yeah, and it is something that you navigate daily, you know, and you absolutely. navigate each novel. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and hopefully sometimes find a way to do it better than others. I mean, writing when Scott ties and out was really difficult because you want, I love Highlander heroes and I love, mm-hmm. you know, but especially at the uh, uh, writing when in the Regency, I mean, man, Scotland was, was totally getting shafted by the English and and by the Scottish aristocracy as well. So, um, you know, the clearances were happening Mm -hmm. and uh, it was terrible. You know, people, it was not a romantic era in Scotland's history whatsoever. So that was tough. Like, how do I balance the realities of life at that time in the Highlands versus um, making it still sort of romantic and humorous that yeah, was kind of tricky sure. <laughs> yeah yeah so but you know that was i was able to make that part of my hero's motivation that you know he somebody of this scottish soldiers had returned from war to find literally nothing like their whole communities were gone their land was taken yeah. over by sheep grazing and and too bad for you. You can go stay on the coast and harvest seaweed. That mm-hmm. was one you know thing you could do, or you could move to Canada or America or Australia, pretty right. much. And the generous—I was just—I've been reading about the history of Canada the last few days, and mm-hmm. you know there was a very generous Earl of Selkirk who actually saw it as his. Quote, I say generous in quotes. Uh-huh, saw it, of course. Saw it as his um, altruistic gesture to help resettle scottish people in canada oh wow so it's like you're gonna get pushed off your ancestral land yeah but i'm gonna help you have you know set up a new home in canada oh my gosh "Hmm." okay thanks question mark (laughs) yeah exactly exactly i mean uh anyway i i I won't i don't want to get into the weeds too much or the heather too much of that but Yeah. yeah No, I, I get that. But um, we also had a question about research rabbit holes. And I think that that relates pretty well. What have been some of your favorite research rabbit holes? And like, how do you take yourself out of them? How do you extricate yourself <laughs> <laughs> if you need to? Well, you know, the for me, research is lots of fun because I'm yeah. a librarian. And so I don't, I, don't, I don't think one has to be a librarian to find research fun. You just have to be curious. So research rabbit holes are a great way to enrich your understanding Mm -hmm. of a period and they're also a great way to procrastinate and i am a fan of both so (laughs) rabbit holes are great however you know the the hardest part of writing is to resist it's not the research the hardest part of research is resisting the urge to use all of it so you know because nobody relate to that yeah right right (laughs) and i think it's it's a it's a misconception that uh historical authors have a harder time with research every contemporary author i know has has to do a ton of research Mm -hmm. too about locations about professions possibly even more because if you get it wrong then that's somebody's actual real life modern experience Absolutely. that they can, you know, call you on and 
whether somebody, how many people really know whether uh, daffodils were blooming in Hyde Park during this month or something, Mm -hmm. you know, not that they weren't there. So it's, I think that historical writers don't really have a much harder time with research than anybody else, but we certainly, certainly can be a lot of fun, you know, and of course, my favorite part of research is traveling. That's the best, (laughs) you know, having tax deductible justification to go stay in castles and whatnot is really, (laughs) really good part of the job. Aw, shucks. (laughs) Yeah. Darn. (laughs) Darn. What a grind. (laughs) That makes sense. Are there any badass ladies that come to mind from your research of late? Of late? Or Um, any, like, anytime? You know, for sure, a lot of... uh, a week's view again, and Minerva's character was based on um, Mary Anning, mm. who was a fossil collector on um, in Lyme Regis, which is slightly different part of the southern coast. But you know, southern coast of England is called the Jurassic Coast because there are so many fossils, so many rich um, uh, fossil records to be found there. And she would like had this like scaffold pulley system where she would descend down these steep chalk cliffs and hammer out fossils and then she would sell them to these wealthy gentlemen who would go present them at the royal geological society as their discoveries so she kind of like eked out a living doing this while everybody these guys got the credit nowadays she gets a little bit more recognition for which recognition there thank you um so that's not enough. Not enough. <laughs> um, and in fact, I was looking for her at the British uh, Natural History Museum in the display that in, by the dinosaur, their famous dinosaurs. They had lists of uh, of paleontologists. Early mm-hmm. pale- and to my memory, I looked. Maybe I just missed it. She wasn't there. I was just shocked. I was like, oh, that's terrible. What are they doing? Come on, add your little Mary Anning plaque. But she's somebody that I think is still, people are still learning more about her contribution. Um, and then, you know, when I was researching this current book, The Governess Game, Alex is an astronomer, mm-hmm. and there are actually lots of female astronomers, and she goes into that a little bit at, at some point yeah. where she's talking with Chase, how many there were. And I, I find that fascinating as well, and I think that might be partly because it was a science that you could do from home. Right. You could literally make astronomical discoveries from your backyard. Yep. So there wasn't a barrier for women of opportunity to travel necessarily mm. or equipment or ships or, you know, right, any right. of those or access to laboratories or whatever the case may be. If you had access to a telescope, you could sit in your backyard and look for comments quite easily. So, you know, there were a lot of women who were involved and made discoveries of their own. And Carolyn Herschel actually was the sister of uh, William Herschel, the first royal astronomer at Greenwich. And she discovered, I can't remember how many, but several comments and that were... Um, that were credited, know, to mar- credited to cool. her. Yes. And she actually was the first female member of, uh, what's it called? Academy of Sciences or whatever the thing is called. And was the first woman to receive a income from the crown for wow. being an astronomer. Of course, it was less than half of what her brother got. But <laughs> uh, story as old as time, right? Yeah, we're still <laughs> fighting that battle, aren't we? And Sally, I think that that you know, I like to pit women 
in with interesting interests against the sexism of their day when I write Regency romance. Mm. However, part of the reason I like to do that is because we still have the same kind of thing going on. I mean, it's not it's not all in the past, you know, it Absolutely. still feels relatable in many ways. So yeah, we still don't have equal pay. Yeah, there are still professions where where women are there's a much right. much higher barrier to entry than there is for men we still have slut shaming yeah the double standards you just mentioned mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. <laughs> not great no 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 hey and we still you know much like the ducks still evolving our ability to make our own decisions about what uh level oh, our, of our choices rights. we have yeah. uh, right exactly yeah. you know and the accompanying moral judgments that surround it mm. it's all still yeah, it's all still very, very present day. We have not defeated those vestiges yeah, and, of and sexism like in our society. That's part of the issue that I have with so many people's like historical ac- accuracy claim or, you know, the way that that can squeak them out. Because I'm just like, we love to think of ourselves as so evolved. Right. But as you said earlier... We didn't reinvent anything. Like, we're we're still battling the same issues, just in slightly different variations. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And yeah, so it's true. It's like the past is not as different. It's not as far away as you think. And like the future is not, I mean, the current modern day is not as evolved as we would like to think either. So, no. And if, if, certain powers that be have their way we will go way way back way way back (laughs) well you know let's just hope that the general progress of humanity is forward even absolutely you know you had the the victorian age following the regency where women kind of were pressed back into traditional roles Mm -hmm. and then you know we had a lot of advances with the suffrage and right. World War Two, and then you know the fifties, sixties happened and kind of squished back down, and then so it just yeah. There's so let's much. Just ebb and hope flow. the general trend is upward. Yeah, absolutely. We had a couple of publishing questions. Okay. One of them was from our our resident Aussie bear lover. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> she wants to know because on the Wicked Wallflowers podcast, you talked about um, the cover and like buying the dresses for the cover shoots and all of that. What goes into differing covers for the international markets? Oh, that is decided by each publisher in the international territory. Oh. And so, in general, I at least trust the local publisher to know what sells best in that market. So don't really have or want to have a whole lot of control over the international covers. Once you kind of sell the foreign rights to the uh, foreign publisher for a traditional book, it's Mm -hmm. kind of like, uh, goodbye. Sort of. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Sometimes they will send them to me like, can you approve this cover? And I've never said no. I mean, maybe if my name was misspelled, (laughs) I would. But it's like, how am I going to know whether that will appeal to Russian readers or whatever the case may be? And so, you know, that publisher is going to know better than I do. So that makes sense. So I'd like to transition really quick to Tessa Dare, the reader. What was your introduction to romance? Do you remember your first romance novel? 
I think my first romance novel, my first my first romance that really captured my interest as a romance was uh, the novelization of The Empire Strikes Back, which I read when I was, what? I think, seven or eight years old. <laughs> we were going on vacation and my mom told me I could pick one book that she would buy to take with me. And so I picked like the thickest book I could find because I... I liked to read in like one uh-huh. how was one book going to last me two weeks so i picked the novelization of uh, empire strikes back and of course i read it within two days or or whatever but mm-hmm. the parts with han and leia of course i would just go back and read them again and again oh, and i yeah. think that's where i realized that's looking back i think that's where uh my formative interest in romance <laughs> maybe came from my first um, that's amazing. proper romance novels. Uh-huh. I think were probably Julie Garwood in my teen mm. years. I love Julie Garwood. So she wrote the medieval Scots. And I, I was just talking with Helen K. Diamond at an event on Sunday about The Bride being one of both of our first uh, romance novels and how wonderful we found it because the heroines were strong, but also a little naive and the mm. heroes were alpha, but also protective and caregiving and there was humor and also lots of sexual tension mm. and it's just definitely one of my formative authors for sure julie garwood very cool and do you have any recent reads that are among your favorites um wow so next to me on the nightstand here that but i've already read it is um the kiss quotient which i think probably everybody has heard about or read already but i just inhaled it it was amazing loved it loved it loved it right now i am reading uh, something that's not a romance novel i i I like to kind of i don't read exclusively romance because i feel like uh i get it's a little too uh, hard to turn off the work brain. Yeah, it's literally your job. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But I have an I have an advanced copy of the new Jodi Picoult, which is called mm. A Spark of Light. And we were talking when we were just talking about reproductive health and choices. We, it's set in a in an abortion clinic during a standoff with a man who has uh, come in with a gun and, oh and uh, yeah exactly and taken hostages to make his own political point and mm-hmm. then the cop who is managing the standoff his daughter is inside the clinic oh. so like there's there's a whole bunch of different like points of view represented uh-huh. and i just i can't imagine a more timely and um time for the book to come out yeah and, uh, I haven't finished it yet, but I am definitely looking forward to doing so soon and really admire her for taking that on and for, I think it, it's a really thought provoking and conversation starting book. Ooh, that's exciting. And um, yeah. that has not been published yet, right? No, it comes out at the end of this month. I cool. So it's not very far off. Okay, great. Great. Awesome. And so you are a must slash auto buy for a ton of our listeners. Yay, and, thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, but now we want to know who are your Tessa Dares as a reader? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Auto bias. Um, so uh one is definitely Lisa Claypus. Uh mm. I've been reading her forever and I just there's a lot of people I would want to be when I grow up, but <laughs> Lisa Claypus is definitely one of them. Yeah. And I just always admire that she gets so much 
deep emotion and also humor and also like family and friend dynamics. She's just so good. Just so good. <laughs> and her heroines do interesting things. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just love her. And there's a whole bunch of other historical authors that I probably that that I could list, but then I'll be like afraid of leaving somebody out. So course, I probably will not um I will not attempt it because <laughs> Be like oh god i forgot that one and then um it will be okay i will mention because it's a little bit um outside the the usual het um historical romances cat sebastian i love her books she's Ooh. been writing a variety of um she started out with um uh mostly gay male pairings but now she's uh she's going in some different queer and gender non-binary type characters and uh -huh. i just but she writes regardless of of what sort of pairing and what characters she has i just love her emotions she's just amazing and i got to read her very first book early and in um ever since she's just been totally on the list oh, <laughs> yeah so i would definitely say those two all right, two cool. of my definite auto buys i'll <laughs> go I, I i could go on but let's leave it there <laughs> yeah so do you have a, a romance like trope that is your catnip? Oh, romance trope that is my catnip. I love like a Beauty and the Beast type story or a wrong Ooh. side of the tracks type story. I just love those. Uh huh. You know, hits me right in the id. As Sophie Jordan and Sarah McLean mentioned this a lot, like writing towards your own id. Mm. <laughs> so I think that's something that hits me in the id, but I'm not always the greatest at. It's not necessarily something that hits me in the, the writing sweet spot, the sort of more, a little bit darker, angstier hero than I would normally write, but sure. I love to read. All right, excellent. Okay, so we, a lot of our listeners talk about how romance, and especially romance written by feminist authors, has become an even more vital part of their self-care routine right now, <laughs> sort of because yeah. of the current political climate and everything else we were we were all talking about the timing of the duchess deal and a couple of the the easter eggs that you dropped in there about false news and, and that kind of thing <laughs> yep um, has the current landscape impacted your writing a lot would you say or... um i think so i think i mean how could it not and sure. and yeah I think, right, when I was um, writing The Duchess Deal, those things were definitely a part of it. And when I was writing The Governance Game, Me Too was very much on my mind. Yeah. Because it, it suddenly became a whole different thing that I was writing this employer and this governess um, uh -huh. romance. And so it made me very, very cautious and concerned about how I wrote their relationship. Um, mm -hmm. Because I did not want it to be exploitative in any way sure. or anything of that nature. And then I was also wondering, have you faced any pushback or criticism about either those components of your writing or, you know, you're also really vocal on Twitter, which I friggin' love. <laughs> have you gotten any pushback from readers about that? Yeah, like very, very rarely will I get something like that. Um, especially not on Twitter. On Facebook, I just I don't go there anymore on Facebook. Not oh, because really? yeah. no, I just I don't have the time. The last time I posted anything remotely political is I post I posted pictures of myself, not necessarily of myself actually, of a protest for the travel ban back mm. when it was uh instituted 
And it did not bother me that there were some people who were like, I'm unfollowing you or whatever. That did not Mm. bother me at all. But what bothered me is that people were getting into arguments with each other on my wall. And like, I couldn't, you know, didn't have the time and the energy to moderate it. And so I was like, I don't want this. I think on Twitter, it doesn't feel like it's my responsibility to be careful of what's like in Facebook, it's really it's my page. Like there's my name at the top of it. And if people Ooh. are like bickering back and forth on my page, then it feels like I'm somehow hosting it. And I just don't want to. I just, I feel like I should moderate it or something of that nature. I guess there may be ways to, somebody told me there are ways to turn off comments on a post, but. Uh, yeah, but even then that's its own sort of statement. It, it is exactly. Yeah. It's its own sort of statement. <laughs> and I just, you know, I just don't feel like that's what it should be about. So um, I am just strictly work basically on Facebook and it's too, it's too much. It's too much. I just don't have. It would like, become a full-time job. Exactly. I don't uh-huh. have the kind of time to devote to it that I feel like I would have to with the number of followers to my page that I have and the Mm -hmm. diversity of them. But if somebody does say like you, but you know what? It's all in my books anyway. It's all in my books. Yeah, totally. So yeah, it's funny. Aaron and I are, you know, we're not a political podcast and we don't, we don't really say any, any explicit political beliefs, but it's pretty easy to tell where we each lie because of the overall commentary that we make on the novels that we read. Absolutely. You know, like romance is so personal and the personal is political. And that's just the way that it ends up coming out, you know? Yeah. I don't know how you could keep it out of your fiction. Everything you, a lot of your beliefs and your values and your likes and dislikes come out when you write. So I don't. That I think there's probably nothing that reveals more about me than the actual books themselves. So, mm, yeah, people are welcome. If it makes them stop reading my books, like, well, I'm not sure why you liked them in the first place. <laughs> so go ahead, by all means. And if somebody refuses to read my books because some because they're super, you know, bigoted or something, well, then it's fine. I don't really want your sure. money. So, yeah, absolutely. It, I don't think that that. It, but like I said, if that's happening, it's a very small number and it's not having an effect on my sales overall. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't I am fine with conversation, debate. I think there's a whole lot of things that people can have different views on and have intelligent conversation about. Um, so it's not as though I, I am a person who's like my way is the only right way or but there are certain things that are values that will come out in my writing and come out yeah. when I'm unfiltered on Twitter for And so, and I don't think there's a whole lot of reason to try to hide them because as we've said, you know, silence is a kind of statement of its own. And sometimes I feel bad about the fact that I'm not really speaking out or, or saying anything on Facebook about certain issues that are important to me, but Mm -hmm. it's just a decision of where to spend your time and energy, I guess, you know? Yeah, most definitely. Well, and on that note of like time and energy and everything else, um, we always, end each episode with a self-love recommendation or a lady love recommendation. (laughs) So if you want me to start off, I will, and then you can think of one maybe. Yes, please start off for me. So my self-love recommendation this week is try as hard as you can to practice productive communication. 
I at least found that I got into the most trouble when I was younger, when I, it's like you were saying earlier, like wanting to show all your research, I would get into, you know, arguments with people or, or just discussions and get into sort of like the and another thing kind of mode. And especially in disagreements with loved ones, it can be so damaging Mm -hmm. to not be careful with your words just because you're upset. And the lady love portion of this is don't be afraid to advocate for that from other people, even mid argument. Like I, I just, I had a disagreement with a friend last week and I had to sort of stop her in the middle of our discussion to say, I understand where you're coming from and I want to hear what you're feeling, but I also want to ask you to try to only say things that are going to be productive to resolving this thing. Mm. Because I am not currently in a space where I can hear a whole lot more emotionally or, you know, anything like that. So like, I just want to do a real quick check and encourage both of us to really think about what we're saying. And if it's something that you need to process out loud, period, Maybe you can process it with someone else and then come back to me with the productive part of it. <laughs> mm. And it was really hard to do because it I don't want my friends to censor themselves. But at the same time, I think it can become such a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. See, I'm the person that would probably be on the other side of that <laughs> conversation. Really? So it's probably good for me to keep in mind. Huh. Okay. I like yeah. that. No, um, yeah, because I am one of those people who's super analytical and who enjoys teasing through different arguments and potential outcomes just for the fun of it. Like I, that's fun to me to argue politics or something. It's not, I don't take it like personally so much. And then Mm -hmm. I have to remember that not everybody is that way, you know, and some people don't enjoy it (laughs) or just don't have time for it. And I'm very similar in an intellectual conversation. Uh But if it's a, if it's a disagreement, I really, I really think that a lot of people should be a little bit more careful Mm. and because it will only help. Right. There's like not right. a downside. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I, I think that that's that's very mature. That's very um, wise. And wisdom is always something that I can use. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. OK, so that's going to be like you're just really deep. Oh, sometimes and I'm it's thinking just that like charcoal face mask. So it's fine. I haven't tried that one either. It just happens to be what happened this week. That's okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's great. That's great. Um, What happened this week? You know what? What happened the last week? We had, like I said, had this huge party at our house and it involved, it was hosted by a variety of people, not just us, because it was a a retirement party for one of my husband's coworkers. And so it was a, a group effort in the hosting and they um, decided to hire a bartender, but the bartender did not come on time. So I got to play bartender for a little while and actually got to learn how to make some new mixed drinks, which was kind of fun for me. Ooh. And I, I kind of, I, I, I think that now I might recommend, you know, like to make a new cocktail if you are a drinking oh, sort. If you're not, fun. 
make a virgin one, you know, yeah, <laughs> an alcoholic too. one. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's just fun, kind of a fun party trick to have up your sleeve. <laughs> oh, I like that. Like yeah. last week, I did not know how to make a tequila sunrise. And now I do. <laughs> get it. <laughs> yeah, get that grenadine into your life, right? Right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and it was also, fun. Like even had the shaker and the ice and like, yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> that's great. And, you know, a lemon rind usually never hurts. A citrus rind of some no, sort. No, <laughs> no, right? Have a lot of limes on hand. And, uh, yeah, it was it was, um, it was, was a lot of fun, you know? So, anyway, there you go. Learn something new. But, you know, don't make it something boring. Learn a cocktail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can feel like you're enriching your life and you're broadening your scope of knowledge. But you're yeah. also having fun. You're also getting a little drunk. I like it. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a way to relax as well. (laughs) All right. So I can't tell you how much I enjoyed the governess game. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm so glad that you did. Thank you for inviting me, for having me. Yeah. I mean, thank you so much for spending your time with me. This was amazing. And then I've also pre-ordered How the Duke Stole Christmas. So I awesome. highly encourage everybody else to do the same because it just seems like a a no brainer. It's real. It's fun, and <laughs> it is. It's a lot of book for your money. Let me tell you. Yeah. So there's four novellas, and you know, mine. I write short, kind of in general. So mine is like, mm. yeah, it's about this. You know, it makes sense. It's like my usual novella length, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some of the other. <laughs> members of our group do not normally write novellas <laughs> Sarah <laughs> so their their novellas are like like books like novels yeah exactly which is amazing it's yeah. great they're all making me look like total slouches but um let me tell you you are gonna get story for your bang for your for your reader buck or and or time if you get it from a library or something else i mean it is it is worth the investment (laughs) (laughs) and great stories october 15th too so that's really exciting you can either like have it and save it or get into the christmas spirit a little bit early without mariah carey on the radio you know very true all those things very true although i i do love that song yeah yes but it usually starts in november on november 15th and then we don't stop hearing it ever but there are worse ones you want to know my what's your what's your least favorite christmas is it the mariah carey one no it's not what's the one you cringe baby it's cold outside oh because it's kind of date rapey it's so rapey (laughs) (laughs) things are ruined now aren't they yeah they really are it's like the old school romance, you know, it's like uh-huh. the, the bodice ripper of, of Christmas carols. It is. Christmas yeah. songs. Good question. Good What's point. yours? <sighs> Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Is that the Ooh. whole title of it? God, I hate that. It's like <laughs> the bells and it's so repetitive and that e e e e e e It's like, I feel like I have a cheese grater on my brain. Like it just <laughs> drives me up a wall oh i dig it all right well we can pull out the dukes who stole christmas when that happens and and just write it out (laughs) neither of those of song neither of those songs is in there yeah there may be some christmas carols. how wonderful okay and is there any social media you want to direct people to um if you want to see things about my 
just general announcements about books and writing, then definitely join my like my Facebook page. It's you know facebook.com slash Tessa Dare Author, all one word. Mm. I have a reader group which can be accessed from that page, which you uh, it's closed group, so you have to um, ask to join and fill mm -hmm. out like a tiny just just you know prove you're not some yeah. random person, an actual reader. And it's called the Secret Society of Damsels Who Dare, and we're having mm -hmm. a lot of fun in that group. And I actually like. I talk a little bit more in that group. Um, still not about politics, but <laughs> about right, right. things. And then uh, if you want to know like all my views on everything and way too much about me, follow me on Twitter, which is at Tessa Dare, all one word. I have an Instagram account. Quite honestly, I don't even know the password. My assistant posts <laughs> something there every once in a while. And that <laughs> is Tessa underscore Dare. Although mm -hmm. it is kind of like a New Year's or mid years resolution of mine to actually learn the password and possibly post a few more things there so we'll see i feel like we all have our own platform though because yeah. twitter is not my platform right like, it's just not i i do it for the podcast and i have a personal twitter but it's just never probably gonna happen what's your favorite <laughs> instagram is my favorite just because it's like visually interesting as well and then i like the Facebook group that we have. Uh huh. I basically only go on Facebook anymore for our geriatric friendship cult <laughs> because that's the name of our group. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. And uh, that's probably my favorite platform just because of the group. But Twitter is so overwhelming for me. And I find that it's so fast paced that mm -hmm. I can't follow anything. So it's, it's hard. That's a little tricky. Yeah. yeah. I'm a little behind on it right now. I haven't been on it much in the last week or so. Mm -hmm. and, and that's uh, a, that is an eternity in Twitter time. It is. It is. It really is. Yeah. But like, if I need to know if there was, if I just felt an earthquake or if there was something else going on, or oh, if it's yeah. just my imagination, I hop on Twitter and I know instantly, yep. <laughs> oh, it was an earthquake or whatever the case <laughs> may be. Or, you know, I like to look at the trends and that's how I get a lot of my news. Oh, I dig it. All right. Well. I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you so, 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 so much for being Thank here with you. us. It was great. Yeah, it was I so nice to talk to you. appreciate the invitation. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you to all your many readers and questions. <laughs> that was very nice. Isn't it cool? Yeah, and they, they love you. So this was such a, this was such a huge, huge thing for them to find out we were doing oh, I too. love you all too. I am cool. very, very grateful for people who follow authors and follow me and will, you know, order the books in advance and talk to friends about them because that is really how we get to have a job and yeah. like having a job and I like having this job. So thank you <laughs> very, very, very much. <laughs> Yay. Well, all right. So keep being a badass and love yourself as much as you love devilish bookshop rakes. All right. It's a promise. Well said. Thank you so much. Okay. Take right. care. Bye. Hey, you. Yes, listener, you. Are you loving the show? If so, please leave a rating and review in your podcast app. The 90 seconds you take to say something nice not only helps new people find the show, but it makes me super smile over at HBHQ. 
Also, I've had a few people ask, and the answer is yes, we are still doing the five-star bribe. If you leave us a review with five stars, then we'll do whatever book you want. We're real, real deep into the list though, so it might be a while. Ah, Lilas. Okay, back to the show. <laughs>